1: Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks and um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British boxers manuals. Manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice ethically sound bunch and my own butt would sing their praises but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at British-Boxers.com and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, and if you use the code PARPOLBRO15 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 15% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and honestly, I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief because that's also what they make, so head to British-Boxers.com because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. (music) Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that wants it to be known that in the Great English-French Fishing Wars of 2021, it has no place in the fight. Yes, that is the joke. I'm starting with this week. That is the joke. I'm Tina Duyeb and as Prime Minister and Leader of House Harkonnen, Boris Johnson says that there are no excuses for not tackling climate change. Does that just mean he's run out and will have to go back to using old ones, such as how it's the EU's fault or the public's for panic surviving? COP26 sounds very much like a name given in court to the Met Police's latest offender. But it is in fact the event that we've been waiting for, the big climate change conference where global leaders will finally halt climate change and save the planet. You know, just like how they did at the 25 UN climate change conferences before this one where it solved everything every single time and we've never had to worry about it since. It's being held in Glasgow a curious choice of location, because if you wanted to show those in charge the dangers of climate change, maybe you wouldn't choose a city that proves people can indeed survive the most extreme of weathers. Delegates from 200 countries flew to Scotland over the weekend to make sure they could discuss in person how to curb causes of emissions like unnecessary flights. It's very much fighting a fire with fire approach, but one where you go into a burning building while actually already on fire and then wonder why and how just more things are now on fire. The building in this instance would of course also be made of coal. Because the conference is in the UK, that unfortunately means that our Prime Minister gets to pretend that he has some idea of what needs to be done, even though we've seen enough examples of him not being able to grasp what the atmosphere in a room is like, let alone the planet. I'm not saying it's clear the planet is doomed, but it's supposedly up to our absolute fuckwit of a leader to get the world to agree on climate change curbing measures when everyone is aware that he's the sort of person who'll say it's the best agreement ever, and then a year down the line say it was terrible once he realises it means he's not allowed to do an election campaign stunt where he wears a hard hat and drives a diesel powered tree cutter into an ancient forest while shouting time to clear out the deadwood. Then of course he'll get angry at whoever put it forward and try to have it removed. Take the current situation where France have detained a British scallop trawler because of disputes about post-Brexit fishing rights. France are angry because the UK has granted them very few licences to fish in British waters, something I'm not sure they'd be all that bothered about if they knew that now, thanks to sewage dumping, the only thing they're likely to catch are floaters and various diseases. France are now threatening to ban British fishing boats, which the UK are complaining would breach international law. And hey, that's our brand back off. The situation has been further inflamed by a letter from France's Prime Minister asking for the UK to be punished by the EU, except it didn't say that and it's basically been very poorly translated. If only the French authorities had just shouted it and pointed at things, then maybe it would have got through correctly. Foreign Secretary and Blue Bottle repeatedly flying into a closed window, Liz Truss, has given France 48 hours to back down in the fishing row and abide by the trade agreements that we don't want to abide by ourselves and keep complaining about, so I'm sure that's going to go well. Truss says the British government are not going to roll over, which does at least admit that they're already lying in some way. Still, nothing like making sure the world pays attention to what's happening at COP26 this week, quite like spending the entire time firing bait into a fishing war. I'm not sure what's likely to convince the rest of the world to take advice from the UK on climate change more than seeing how good we are at not agreeing to our own terms. Perhaps it was the Chancellor and star of Flushed Away, Rishi Sunak, deciding that in his budget the week before COP26, he'd cut taxes on domestic flights. The only way that could possibly help curb global warming is if he's opting for the old-fashioned way of catching a child smoking a cigarette and then making them smoke the whole pack at once till they're sick and never do it again. Maybe after everyone in the country has taken 14 EasyJet flights in a year, we'll never want to pay 5 quid for a bottle of water or to use the loo or to stop the attendant poking you with a pointed stick or whatever it is that Stellius has worked out he can get away with now now. It may well work too, not least because if we increase domestic flight travel by a very large amount, we'll very quickly not fly ever again because the only transport available will be by boat. Long haul flights are seeing a tax rise though, and so perhaps Sunak just assumed he'd be doing the world a favour by keeping polluted air just to Britain and absolutely nowhere else. I mean, that is clearly how he thinks air works, or why would he still refuse to wear a mask in the commons? Obviously, as the press made clear, the most important bit was that in preparation for the budget, the Chancellor wore socks with sliders, something that caused astonishment and comment across the media. I was unsurprised, as really it's the ideal footwear for a man whose political decisions are all flips or flops. Sunak spent a lot of the budget giving out very confusing messages, such as promising to get the economy back to pre-2010 levels, while also saying only the Conservatives can be trusted with taxpayers' money. If, it appears he's trying to insinuate, there has been some sort of secret war situation whereby those who he thought were Conservatives and were in charge for the last decade were actually imposters or shape-shifting aliens, then maybe, maybe the government should have let people know. Though I suppose it'd be pretty bad press for everyone to realise completely inhuman beings managed to do a very accurate impression of them. A report was revealed on the morning of the budget that the £37 billion test and trace system was an eye-watering waste of money. So perhaps Sunak just meant the conservatives could be trusted with taxpayers' money, but it's when they hand it to anyone else that it all goes wrong, and so they shouldn't be allowed to spend without guided supervision. It's like how a kid will grasp onto a £1 coin with all their might, but it's when they spend that £1 coin on slime and the slime ends up on your carpet and the cat and causing hundreds of pounds of damage that you realise you shouldn't have given them anything in the first place. It was massively irresponsible. Tax was based on high-alcoholic drinks, which now means it'll sadly be more expensive to numb ourselves through several more years of this shit. On the plus side though, duty on champagne was cut. Now, you might not think that's a plus because it's clearly an elitist bonus, but I think it'll increase the chances of the cabinet being knocked out by a poorly aimed cork and I'm keeping all things crossed that karma exists. Liverpool is also getting £2 million towards yet another Beatles attraction to add to all the rest so that people in the city can have another galling reminder of what it was like when ordinary folk could afford to pursue jobs in the arts. The money is actually just for the city to consider another Beatles attraction, so knowing Rishi Sunak, there's every chance it'll just end up as an expensive car park run by Ringo. If it wasn't the Chancellor's budget basically handing a large cheque to Hoggish greedily, yes, that is the villain from Captain Planet, yes I am down with the kids – then maybe the rest of the world will be influenced to cap their emissions by hearing our Prime Minister talk at the G20 in Rome this weekend. You know, where everyone flew to before then flying to Glasgow to talk about stopping people flying so much. The leaders of the world's richest economies agreed to increase efforts to limit global warming with meaningful and effective actions, but Boris Johnson said promises without action were starting to sound hollow, probably because it's almost exactly the sort of thing that he would say before then doing absolutely nothing. In fact, when you think about it, maybe he was praising their lack of decisions, much like how he's wasting a lot of his energy complaining that other countries aren't doing their bit while simultaneously backing a new drilling permit at the Cambo oil field and saying he can't do anything about the building of a new coal mine in Cumbria. I mean, let's be fair, he probably can't. He doesn't manage to do anything much about anything, really. Even if he lay down on the site as protest, they'd just see it as being even more fossil fuel than before. I suppose the argument in favour of the coal mine would be without it, the government would find it a lot harder to create all the smoke to go with all the mirrors. I know it's a regular joke on this podcast, but it is very hard to tell sometimes just what Boris Johnson means with his statements. I mean, he said that if the Glasgow COP26 fails, the whole thing fails, but coming from a man who regularly fails, this might not be a warning, but a promise. Or his concerns that history will judge what they achieve at the conference, even though he'll happily ignore history in order to make up his own events anyway. Over the weekend, the Prime Minister claimed that the Roman Empire fell due to uncontrolled immigration, which just isn't true. In fact, if he'd bothered to look at the history, he'd maybe see some similarities in a powerful institution collapsing due to a number of factors, including a failing civil administration, a failing economy, eternal power struggles, changes in the climate, disease, and of course, invasion by barbarians. Though in comparison, in 2021, attacks from those of a primitive culture appeared to be mainly from within Westminster and aiming outwards. Rather than blame everything incorrectly on immigration, Boris Johnson would have been better to compare his leadership to when Nero fiddled as Rome burned. Only this time it's the planet and as Johnson has no musical ability, he's just playing with his nads again. At the COP26 opening, Johnson's speech warned that we have run down the clock on climate change and it's now one minute to midnight. Forever the journalist, that'll be why he's left it till now to do absolutely anything. Following him, the UN Secretary General and Fred Armisen character Antonio Guterres did a veritable subtweet of a speech saying that we have to stop using nature as our toilet, so clearly he's never been caught short on a woodland walk. Those words must have felt, though, like they were directed right at our government, who've only partially U-turned on allowing companies to dump sewage into the rivers and seas, but there is a chance that they'll also feel proud that they've shown everyone at the conference exactly what not to do so they won't make the same mistakes. Then Antonio Guterres said that we're digging our own graves and it was a wonder he didn't then go on to make some reference to running out of fuel or the fact that people go on holidays too often just for the full roast of the host. I hope this next fortnight means changes happen so that we don't look back and think June was a great documentary film. Climate activist Greta Thunberg said when interviewed about COP26, It's never too late to do as much as we can. Which is true, but I do worry the British government will hear that and assume that it just means they won't need to do anything much now. In other news, the Home Secretary, and if only we could send her into the atmosphere, she'd immediately tackle global warming by being so, so cold. pretty Patel told the Lord's Home Affairs and Justice Committee that many people crossing the channel are not genuine asylum seekers, but people who really want to live in UK hotels. There speaks someone who's never ever had to stay in the Citrus Hotel in Cardiff. According to a report by the Refugee Council, refugees entering the UK and put up in hotels are given £8 a week and often have to share with complete strangers, usually given inadequate clothes, shoes or food, and hotels that house them are regularly targeted by right-wing groups. Still though, there's usually a bottle opener attached to the desk and the possibility someone's pissed in the kettle so hey, I can really see the global appeal. Conservative MP for North Shropshire and man with the appearance of someone who'd star in a Midsummer Murders episode about dogging, Owen Paterson, is facing a 30-day suspension for an egregious breach of the lobbying rules and using his parliamentary office for business meetings with clients. So luckily it's only an alleged corruption of democracy which means he'll be back at work within a month. Actually, it may even be sooner than that, as MPs are going to debate and vote on his suspension this Wednesday, because, as you know, it's a very complex issue and needs debating. I mean, did he, as all the evidence shows, break all the rules and inachronism? Or alternatively, is it fuck you because the whole country is broken? It's very, very hard to say. Patson is, of course, claiming that the investigation into him was biased, you know, because it said that he did very wrong things for doing wrong things, and he also said that it likely contributed to his wife dying of suicide last summer. I mean, if that isn't enough of a ghoulish thing to say in the first place, I'm sure it's definitely more stressful knowing there's an investigation into your partner committing breaches of their job and not at all knowing that you're basically married to a massive wrongen. I mean, really, if only everyone who acted in such a highly suspicious and unethical manner wasn't investigated and were just left completely alone, everyone would be much happier, right? Back when he was Environment Secretary in 2013, Owen Paterson said of the government's failed culling efforts that the Badgers keep moving the goalposts. Turns out though it was him that was doing it, the massive prick. As Patterson's suspension is debated, an MP who sexually harassed a member of staff has now been allowed back into the Conservative Party after just 12 weeks. Rob Roberts, who looks like if someone drew a face on Noki, kept making unwanted advances on a member of staff, but defended himself by saying they were romantic rather than sexual, something that would be very hard to prove when you look like a walking penis. Roberts is now back on the benches having learned his lesson, which is that the Conservatives treat sexual harassment really seriously, well, for about a week and then hope everyone's forgotten about it. Conservative MP for Keithley and stock photo of a football pundit, Robbie Moore, claims that in his constituency, fireworks are being set off all year round to let people know where drugs are being dropped. Yes, I'm sure it's much easier to track wind speed, location and velocity than it is to text someone on a burner phone. Maybe that's why the saying is remember, remember the 5th of November because most people can't on account of being off their tits. Social media users could face two years in prison for posting content that causes psychological harm under the new online harms bill. So that'll be all the breaking news accounts gone then, as well as that one guy who replies to all my jokes with his own worst version of them. And lastly, Facebook has rebranded in a hope that by putting a fake moustache on, everyone will think it's completely different from the social media site that has been alleged by its former employee to knowingly make hate worse. It's now to be called Meta, as in short for MetaNazi in the groups on there, and they'll be embracing virtual reality, likely in the hope that it means you'll stop noticing the real outside world that they've already helped ruin. Crikey, that is 250 episodes of this then. 250 hours, which is the sort of amount of time people normally have to do community service for after being charged with antisocial behaviour, isn't it? Does that mean I'm now all done? I'll have to make a nicer podcast? I'm not sure I've managed one about politics with at least a swear or two in it. What has this podcast achieved in its 250 episodes, you ask? Well, looking back, uh, it's definitely improved in sound quality sometimes it's provided hundreds of different imaginative descriptions for politicians uh many many swears and me having to do research about things that i then immediately forget by the following week and will occasionally bring up drunk with someone who wants to talk about almost anything else and in its entire 250 episode history it has had two listens in uzbekistan so big shout out to you two people um who i assume only listen to this as light relief might just be one person who listened to it once hated it but tried again I don't know, very difficult to know. Anyway, here we are, 250 episodes in, and obviously you can tell that since I started this podcast at the beginning of 2016, it has made absolutely massive, drastic changes to global politics. Admittedly, not good ones. In fact, thinking about it, considering what's happened, it's probably really not helped. Hmm, that's worrying, isn't it? Do I stop and see if things get better, or should I just sort of plough on until I know for sure... It's not anything to do with the show, or perhaps I have mad power that I don't understand. Choices, choices. Um, but thanks to all of you for being here, though, and still listening in every single week. If you so feel that you've benefited at all from these 250 episodes, like it perhaps drowned out the sound of the news, or you were able to avoid a difficult date by seeing that somebody subscribed to this show and so obviously not right, uh, then do consider joining the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and helping keep this going for another 250 episodes. (laughs) I joke, as uh, of course any comedy that is critical of the government will likely be banned by then, uh, and I'll have had to replace this with a show about Rishi Sunak's choice of footwear instead. Ah, oh, fucking hell. I was stuck in a lot of traffic uh, last Wednesday uh, on the uh, delightful M2. And I basically sat in this car desperately needing a wee and listening to the pre-budget coverage on Radio 5 Live. There was a full hour before the budget of, should men wear socks with sliders? Because Rishi Sunak has. And that was it. That was basically people were calling in, discussing what men should wear on their feet. That was their budget pre-budget coverage. I had an overwhelming urge just to drive into the central reservation, then walk off into the fields while screaming. And then I thought, maybe, maybe I'm being a snob. Maybe there's something here because the public can connect with footwear in a way they can't with economics. So that is also because of the way economics is discussed so patronisingly sort of on the news, like the Chancellor's piggy bank, not realising that if the entire economy was kept in a piggy bank, wow, we'd be in really serious trouble. And also like the economy would just be ruined by... Someone with a hammer. Anyway, so maybe just by people hearing the chancellor wear sliders, maybe they'll connect that in their brain with him being a slippery fucker and a backless mule. So it could be quite powerful. Or more likely, as they said on the radio, people just think he's stylish or something, and you know, so it's fine if he makes a living really, really difficult for you. Sorry, I got carried away there. What, what I meant to say was, uh, join the Patreon if you can, and you know, give the show a review and keep telling people that this exists. Um, it feels sort of over the course of 250 episodes, it's got harder and harder to do that with this show, uh, considering that I don't have any celebrities on it so it's either you know help me spread the word or just try and make any of the people that I interview on the show become celebrities um, I'm not sure what would be easier I will leave that to you right um, that's it I don't really have any admin this week uh, apart from is the fact it's cold I don't want to do anything I would like to just stay indoors now um till March Uh, I I think I've said that on an episode before but I I mean it even more this week even more the the clocks went back and uh, my daughter sort of took that to mean that she needed to get up an hour even earlier so that we wouldn't gain that extra one in bed Uh, and that's been the week so far so I've um, I basically don't want to leave my pajamas until March, April, probably May, possibly June. Um, anyway, so look, here we are uh, for this quarter of a thousandth episode. Um, uh, I have an interview with Dr. Garfield Benjamin all about whether Facebook is making hate worse. Um, and it, I mean, it is. It's, but I mean, like even worse than you already knew it was. Even worse than having to speak to all those people from your school that you never ever wanted to speak to again. It's already worse than that. Um, and in the middle, there's a little bit about the COP26 and just what it's all about. Uh, no, don't worry. You don't have to have seen the previous 25 especially as the plots were largely the same but with less immediate jeopardy and fewer ridiculous british characters so do you you know what a podcast is no what do you think it is a pancake (laughs) so if i said i've done 250 episodes of my podcast do you think that means 250 pancakes yeah where am i keeping them all In the drawer. (laughs) So when I go upstairs to do my podcast, am I just what am I doing? Getting pancakes. I'm glad you take my job so seriously. When you're a worm. What? What do you mean? When I'm a worm?
0: You're a (laughs) spilly-billy.
1: It's hard not to read the headline that whistleblower and data scientist Francis Haugen said that Facebook is making hate worse and think anything other than, yeah, I know, I'm on it, and that already gives me an extra thing to hate on a daily basis. But thanks to the former employee leaving her position with the social media giant and taking tens of thousands of documents with her, it's been revealed that Facebook is making all the hate even worse than you just occasionally getting event invites from that person at work who wants to do a board game night. In the last few weeks, there have been loads of allegations about the social media company's awareness that it was damaging teenagers' mental health, instigating racial violence in Ethiopia and Myanmar, amongst other places, and helping spread misinformation. No, not just about how you posted that you had fun on holiday, when actually you were at a buffet for mosquitoes and somehow caught gonorrhea four times in six days. We already knew, or at least suspected so hard we pulled a muscle, that Facebook had a big role to play in Brexit and the 2017 and 2019 British elections. But in terms of the damage the site has seemingly willingly caused, or at least not not stopped from happening, it's clear that the man even AI says is creepily inhuman, Mark Zuckerberg, is in some way responsible for so much of 2021 being a total shit show. Who'd have thought so much trouble would come from a young man getting rich by creating a revenge website for getting dumped? No, me either, right? But how do you even begin to control a global corporation with 2.89 billion active users? And indeed, should anyone be trying? The UK government's online harms bill seems less bothered about curbing the powers of tech giants and a lot more about making sure that anonymous accounts can't tweet abuse, as then it would leave MPs and radio presenters without anything to do. Even if you somehow blissfully aren't on it, we live in a world where social media has a big say on things and I should know on account of how regularly it ignores me posting about this show. So with the Facebook allegations and the upcoming online harms bill returning to Parliament any week now, I spoke to Dr Garfield Benjamin, researcher in technology, privacy laws, online content and basically all the things on the internet we interact with and stupidly click accept to without thinking. And they study just how those things will affect the future of society. Garfield is a lecturer in the Sociology Department at Solent University and their most recent policy report was on regulating privacy and content online so they seem very much the right person to ask questions to. I found this an absolutely fascinating chat with Garfield and I really hope you do too. Here they are. Uh, Garfield, I'm 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 coming at you with some bias here because I don't like I've never liked Facebook and I've always felt like it's a, a horrible site that just seems to want to put me in touch with people from school that I've never wanted to talk to since leaving school anyway. Um, but a lot of the allegations that have come out uh, or, or accusations about Facebook that have come out since uh, Francis Huggins, um uh, testimonial uh and, and there's been a lot of controversy about Facebook over the years about causing, you know, violence in Myanmar and Sri Lanka and now in Ethiopia and, and, and absolutely sort of making uh, hate worse. Is, is that uh, something that, you, that you, you think they have been doing? Is that the greatest risk that Facebook have been posing to us or is our sort of invasion of privacy more worrying?
2: Um Yeah, I would say that it does, it does seem increasingly like Facebook are, uh, choosing to make hate worse i think researchers for a long time have pointed out that they they have been making hate worse but now we're starting to see you know the advantage of getting these whistleblowers to show the internal documents is we can see that those decisions have been made purposefully it's not facebook isn't this sort of nameless entity it might seem that way but it is it's a bunch of people isn't it and they are making decisions they are building things they're choosing to put these these things on at different levels you know a lot of it's the executives but there's, there's lots of people involved in these decisions.
1: And is it all through, it's all through sort of pushing people one way or another? You know, you you can't, is, is it still possible to kind of just be on Facebook and be, you know, pally with your friends and family a, a, across the seas? Or is it, and, you know, because there's there's something, especially about the sort of uh, what's being discussed in the way if you're, you know, they sort of said, if you're left, it's making you extreme left. And if you're right, it's making you extreme right. I think that was one of the sort of quotes that came out me. You know, are, are, are we... Uh, you know is it now worrying for for anyone to be on that site at all is it going to radicalize all of us overnight by (laughs) by liking a few posts
2: yeah it's not going to be that extreme that sort of rapid is it but um yeah i mean it like with a lot of things it does depend how you use it if you can find a a sort of a space on there that is internally moderated a nice community then then yeah that's fine It, it does still have uses particularly in the context of the pandemic it's kept people together it's you know Social media in general has a lot of positive, but Facebook in particular, you know, it it does push people towards this more extreme content. Um, same with things like YouTube as well. You know, there's people have proven that uh, you know it pushes, yeah, left wing videos into conspiracy theories, right wing videos into sort of you know, racist videos, um, vegetarianism to veganism, or you know, running into long, super long distance running. And, you know. It, it makes everything more extreme, doesn't it? You know, people like Zeno Tifecki have shown this, um, and yeah, it does that through a whole load of things. Like, um, you yeah, know, one of the things from the recent leaks is this idea that they, yeah, we have likes, and that shows shows what we're into. But actually, the more extreme reaction emoji they massively weight in their algorithm. So if you show you're angry about something, that'll affect it more than just liking something. So yeah, they are sort of choosing to play into these these sort of spirals of emotion really, and trying to sort of toy with, with what we find, well, they would call it engaging, but that's a, that's a vague term, isn't it? Engaging could be, you know, we can find a TV show engaging because we enjoy watching it. It draws us into a story or we can find something that we just want to argue with as engaging, but that you know, that's not a positive experience for anyone really.
1: And that's, I mean, the way in which that interacts with people is so hard to, um, I suppose monitor, I mean, obviously we, we've got these accounts and research has shown, as you said, that it, it does make, sort of push, push people to the extreme. But to be able to quantify how much someone's angry emoji then makes them more angry about something, you know, that that's quite a hard thing to grasp, uh, as, you know, exactly how it works. And does that then make it much harder to know how to control what they're doing? Because how do you control someone's grasp over emotions you know that's music could make you as you said you know feel a certain way we can't then say we need to limit how music is played or you know something like that.
2: Yeah exactly I mean part of the issue with these the algorithms to decide what we get shown is that it's turning everything into a metric you know it's turning thoughts and feelings which are you know, they're vague, they're individual, they're really difficult to describe a lot of the time, it's converting that into numbers that can then be processed and used to, to funnel certain content to us, certain ads to us. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, so for example, in, with this angry emoji, it's, again, it's good to see the internal documents, to, see the, to put a number on that. You know, an angry emoji is worth five times as much as a like in terms of how the algorithm decides what we're going to see. And so, yeah, they've, they've chosen to allocate these numbers. They're not just arbitrary. They're not necessarily from the data. They just, they have decided to construct this algorithm in this way. Um, but then oftentimes they themselves don't necessarily know why that this sort of extreming pattern happens. You know, Twitter recently, um, by contrast, they're much more transparent. They still have all the same problems, but they're at least a bit more transparent about giving researchers access and, and publishing things. And they published some results that they'd found that, that showed, uh, I think it was a a sort of right-wing bias, uh, particularly in this sort of extreming effect. And they don't necessarily know why that's happening. That could be partly down to the user base. It could be partly down to the algorithm. It could be any number of things. These are social and technical systems um, all interacting. So, yeah, it's great that they're showing that openly and that they've identified this problem. But, yeah, they still have a lot of work internally to understand their own system. So then for us with Facebook, and we don't get access to the data, it's, it's, you know, we can see the effects, and we can show those, but understanding why is is very complicated. Beyond just, you know, they want us to keep clicking so they can keep showing us ads.
1: Without sort of wanting to, I suppose simplify it, but is is part of it that we're still grasping our understanding of how social media, as you say, we don't we we don't fully know how Facebook works, but just as, as people and as users, we still don't fully understand social media and, and how it works and its effects on us. And then I suppose we've got the other level that these are big international companies and they are regulated in different ways in different countries. And that then becomes very difficult to have an overall sort of hold on what they do.
2: Yeah, exactly. You've got all these different levels, all these different types of decisions being made, you know, users trying to understand it while... The technical systems keep changing while our cultural practices keep changing. You know, TikTok suddenly becomes a big thing, and that changes how we interact with social media, the kinds of content that we want. Um, you know, new age groups come up and, and use things in different ways, different communities use things in different ways. And then we've got sort of, you know, Facebook is this big international company. They want, you know, they have their sort of centralized systems. Um they have their, their way they decide things. Then you've got the different regulatory elements, and yeah, again, that balance is really difficult between the sort of the global and the local. And then even within a certain country, there are different you know maybe different languages or different contexts, and and it it's a, it's a difficult balance to find in terms of which level to pitch some of these regulations at.
1: And it's, I am mean, I'm going to ask you about the online harms, but in a minute. But obviously, you know, with companies like Facebook being so global, and you know often sort of read that they've got more users than sort of most countries have voters or whatever, you know, <laughs> sort of stats like that. Does that make them kind of lawless or, you know, is it a bit like being in international waters is, is, is the way that you have to regulate these individually in, in, in individual countries or is, you know, do does it, do we need some sort of global uh, action uh, to, to control sites like this?
2: Yeah. I mean, they certainly act as if they're lawless. I mean, shouldn't be and there are laws that do apply but these companies have such clout and such well hubris i guess to think they can just keep doing what they want and regulators even when laws are in place that they don't necessarily get very well enforced so it's it sort of just further demonstrates these companies that they can carry on doing what they want because you know like in the uk the the ico is is pretty good at, at coming after you know if I don't know, a, a travel company leaks a load of data, they'll go after them. But they're not good at going after these big systemic problems caused by Facebook. You know, in, in relation to Cambridge Analytica and Brexit, they identified that Facebook played a major role in that. Not necessarily directly, but they, they identified, well, in their own words, they called it systemic vulnerabilities in our democracy and then gave them a £500,000 fine. Like, It's Well, that's pocket change to Facebook. That's not going to make any systemic changes. That's not going to you know, make them rethink their practices, that's just, okay, we'll, we'll write that off as part of, our, part of our sort of quarterly risk and, and just pay the fine. It's, um, I think it requires a lot of political will behind this regulation as well. And yeah, I, I definitely agree that we need some, well, a lot more um, collaboration between regulators um, to, to take into account those different contexts and needs while we're creating this, this sort of global response to, to these platforms.
1: So five hundred thousand pounds. Well when, when also uh it was a different sort of subject but the amount of tax that they avoid, yeah, that's probably probably completely negated by that at the same time. Um one of the because the online harms bill, as I just mentioned earlier, is is looking to come back now, potentially before uh to Parliament, potentially before Christmas. Um and one of the the things they originally said that they were going to do was sanction tech bosses um who was it, failed to tackle harmful content, I think was the, the words. And now that seems to have been dropped um is would that have been a a good way would that have been easy to do and would that have been a a good method of regulating it
2: i'm not convinced it would have been that effective to be honest to me it sort of seems to create a lot of loopholes um i think one of the problems and one of the difficulties with this kind of regulation is that it is so complex there's so many different bits to take into account um that it's easy to see a sort of symptom or get some kind of Know, what looks like a quick fix there, okay, we'll just you know, hold them individually to account. Well, then you just get certain sort of slightly lower level people become scapegoats and you just get the internal politics within the company of who's who's to blame this time, who do we ditch this time with a big payoff and, and that kind of thing. Um, I think part of the issue is that these, again, it's this impression of these companies of these big sort of nebulous entities, You know, the, the sort of existence of corporations legally is is problematic in this respect you know it it does disperse responsibility um and yes sometimes we do want to put sort of punitive measures on an individual who's made these decisions but unless you can force them to hand over every set of meeting notes it's very difficult to work out who precisely was involved they may not know it might just be you know um not necessarily incompetence but it might just be cluelessness you know it it might not be malice and so it's I'm not convinced that that holding individual tech bosses accountable would be the way forward.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: We'll be back with Garfield in a minute, but first... COP26 is here, and as though it was some sort of message from Mother Earth, a massive storm blew trees onto train tracks, meaning a whole ton of people had to fly there instead and arrive just as Glasgow was on flood alert. It was not unlike a Roland Emmerich film, but if Rishi Sunak had refused to allocate enough funds for CGI, and the storyline had people believing in scientists even less. But you and I know that COP26 is about getting the world to tackle climate change, but what's it really all about? I mean, it is really all about getting the world to tackle climate change. But you know, was it really, really all about? Yeah, no, it's still the same. But here's some more details, so I don't have to just keep saying that sentence again and again because that'd get really boring. Was it really all about though? It's still, still the same. Back in 2015, at COP21, 200 countries all agreed to keep global warming well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and to only aim for 1.5 degrees Celsius, which will still cause major earthly fuck-ups of the kind that will make all the weather cray-cray in some countries have a terrible time. But at least it won't be 2 degrees Celsius, which is basically when the Earth gets mad and we'll all be living in an even worse version of water world. That was called the Paris Agreement because, well, it was agreed in Paris and all the countries that signed up to it had five years to submit their roadmaps which is possibly not the right term for an emissions cutting plan to slash greenhouse emissions which were officially known as their nationally determined contributions. But even with 12 months getting added to that because of Covid most countries haven't managed to get anywhere close with the slashing and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report said global warming has got worse and basically by 2030 we're going to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius a whole decade earlier than previously thought. So now the thinking is, if the Paris agreements are actually met, they won't be enough and will probably lead to a 3 degrees Celsius rise, which is when we all get to play The Floor is Lava 24-7, and if they aren't met at all, we'll be at a 4 or 5 degrees Celsius rise, which is when no one will need to travel to Mars anymore, because we'll have a pretty good simulation right here. I have no idea if those are the real stages of planetary decline, but that's how it plays out in my head, even though the flooding at 2 degrees Celsius should mean the floor can't really be lava at 3 degrees Celsius, can it? I mean, yeah, I know, I haven't really thought it'd So COP26 is all about countries reducing their emissions drastically by 2030. Not net zero, mind, just sort of lower, which means there'll be loads of chat about phasing out coal power, cutting down fewer trees, protections against impacts of climate change and all that sort of stuff that we've all been told that we should have been doing for the last 30 years, but none of the main countries governments could be bothered to. The US, China and the EU have all agreed to be carbon neutral by 2050, which as you'll know by how years and time work, is about 20 years later than when things might get bad. To go no higher than 2 degrees Celsius by 2030, 15 billion tonnes of CO2 emissions will need to be cut, and to stop it at 1.5 degrees Celsius it'll have to be twice that. So it needs some pretty big action pretty fast. Why don't we just stop doing all the things until the planet heals again so we don't wipe out all life on Earth? Well, well, because it will cause massive societal and structural changes that will take us all some time to get used to, and all governments are quite scared of pushing that through and losing all the support of people who have got no contemplation of the kind of horrors that we may face. But also because fossil fuel companies still have quite a lot of money, and as we know, uh, money is going to be really needed uh, in order to fight tsunamis with. I think you just throw it at them and they... They just turned back. I'm sure that's how it works. But also, uh, there are issues in having agreements about this sort of thing, because while developing countries don't actually produce much of the world's emissions, they do suffer the worst consequences of climate, which they also don't have the money to tackle. In 2009, many of the wealthier countries promised $100 billion to help by 2020, but that hasn't really happened yet. Boris Johnson has called on richer nations to increase climate support, which is good, but it's also at the same time his government has cancelled $12 billion of funding to developing nations. You wonder why he assumes anyone will think he has a point. So that's one big issue, is exactly which countries spend what money helping other countries in order to help them curb their climate emissions and deal with some of the issues. The UK right now, just our own situation, has cut its emissions by 37% since 1990, if measuring the CO2 we create from the goods and services we produce. And that's great. It's much better than any of the other G7 countries who've only reduced emissions by over 10% over the same amount of time. Except part of the reason for this is we don't really make goods anymore. We're a services-based economy. So on our emissions based on consumption, we've only made half of that level of progress and much of our Brexit trade is now likely to come from further distances than the EU, meaning those emissions will increase, not decrease. Loads of people online like to complain about China's records saying they're who you should be complaining to because they're causing all the pollution, but actually their emissions based on consumption are only a fraction of ours. Why? Because we keep buying all the stuff from them and then it adds to our one. So we need to buy from countries using greener production methods, otherwise we're most definitely a massive part of the problem. And we need a net zero plan that's actually any good and to insulate buildings properly. And we also need to stop pouring poo into rivers, opening new coal mines and allowing new drilling in the sea. And in 2015, Johnson was denying climate change was even caused by humans. So really, a lot of the other countries attending COP26 need to be saying to our Prime Minister, OK, but you first buddy. Fingers crossed this week causes rapid global change, but I don't know about you. I'm really going to start practicing at don't step in the lava. And now back to Garfield. Makes it very sort of hard to work out what would be a threat to them because it was we sort of discussed like money. A fine isn't particularly worrying for companies that have got that much money, and and uh, sanctions in in that way aren't so worrying. I mean, is it you know? Uh, Without, without, I don't really want to praise this method, but you know the Chinese method of just banning it. Is that the only thing that could perhaps cause fear in a company such as Facebook?
2: Yeah, I mean, but even then, I mean, you're, you're putting people at risk. It came, that came up in Australia recently. Um, they changed the, um, or tried to change the laws around um, paying media platforms. They wanted to um, basically get Facebook to pay news sites whenever a link popped up because they saw money going away from conventional journalism and, and into Facebook instead. Um, and basically, Facebook just threatened to pull the plug. It actually worked the other way, that Facebook can just threaten to say, well, we'll just withdraw from Australia. And the number of people who rely on Facebook to run their business or look after family or kids or stay in touch with, with people, it's uh, you know that's the threat the other way around in, in a lot of ways. Um, I do think that it, it is an option. It is a... a a good option to have there to just ban a platform. Um, And I think maybe that some of the difficulties come from needing to look across different areas of regulation. So, you know, we've got the, on the one hand, the kind of antitrust things, which by themselves won't fix it because they'll just come up with, you know, we saw the change to WhatsApp's terms and conditions in anticipation of, you know, would they be broken up so that, okay, well, we'll just just prepare by having data sharing agreements between the different companies. but that that's one tool that we can use alongside, you know, we could just ban surveillance advertising. I mean, I, it's going to be difficult to get a party to actually get behind that. But, you know, it's an option there. You know, it, it just requires quite radical changes, I think. Um, and like I said before, it's about political will as much as anything else.
1: So on that note, how... Confident are you that the Online Harms Bill is a useful piece of legislation? I mean, it it seems that uh, in its return to Parliament, it's going to mostly be about. uh, I've got this quote here: "More stringent methods to tackle online extremism." Um, which I mean, that rings, especially with this current government, rings big alarm bells for me. <laughs> and when Extinction Rebellion being classed as sort of almost a terrorist organisation, um, you know, what what are the risks of regulation like that? Do you think that there's? Uh, are you are you hopeful that this might be an effective piece of policy, or is it, does it concern you?
2: It does concern me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the sort of censorship argument that a lot of people push is the sort of flat rejection that a lot of people um say against it i think that you know we've seen enough harms on social media that we do need to to regulate content more thoroughly but equally the way that's being proposed in the online harms bill puts a lot of power into ministers hands rather than independent regulators Um, and that is very political and that is very risky like you said um, who becomes defined as extreme is it's highly problematic. We can see it being linked to you know the prevent system and things like that, which again is is often used to sort of label certain groups as as extreme, others and things like that. Um so yeah, I think it, it could be an opportunity to make a lot of good progress. A bit like the GDPR, you know, it, it wasn't perfect, but it was a step. And I think it would be useful at this point to have a step rather than no step. But yeah, do we just shift power into the hands of Random ministers, do we just create more loopholes that companies can get used to? You know, Even pushing it through before Christmas, that seems to be in response to these leaks, but it needs more deliberation than that. And I think it, that in particular is worrying for me, that it's going to make a mess of it by pushing it through to get something in place rather than considering it properly.
1: Because one of the sort of... Um... Big targets recently has been the idea of anonymous accounts that need to be banned, which is sort of uh, obviously the death of David Ames is very tragic, but it didn 't seem to have any link to the person that that allegedly you know killed him or has been accused of killing him it, having an on- we didn't know anything about that person's online use, and it came from it what we need to stop is on- anonymous accounts, which I've obviously heard a lot of concerns about online from people with anonymous accounts who work in various areas, sort of uh, sex work or want to leak things, or, you know, there's lots of areas where it's necessary. I mean, is, are anonymous accounts dangerous? Should, should they be banned?
2: No, quite frankly. I, yeah. I really don't buy that argument. I think, um, there are so many groups for whom anonymous accounts are essential. Yeah. Like you mentioned whistleblowers, there's also, you know, there's massive issues with Facebook's real name policy and trans people. Um, you know, researchers like Anna Lauren Hoffman and Luke Stark have written a lot about that. Um, but even things like you know, how many teachers or nurses, for example, don't want to put their full name on because it exposes them. So they, you know, they might use a pseudonym, a pseudonym for their last name or a, a previous name or you know, first name, middle name. Because, yeah, we, we, need to, we need to have control over the context that our name is out there and that our profile is out there. We might want to share you know, these platforms before sharing information. The internet is for sharing information. But we need to do that in a way that doesn't, doesn't put individuals at harm. So, yeah, I would say that anonymous accounts just feeds into the especially this current government's hatred of, of encryption and anything like that online. Um, and it wouldn't actually solve the problems. You know. The biggest abusers do it with their name in full view.
1: Yeah, that is always something, you know, as much as uh, just uh, the joys of doing comedy online, you get a lot of trolls. And uh, quite some of them are anonymous. But I think, as you mentioned, a lot of the most harmful stuff comes from, say, MPs whose name you can quite clearly see, or or news journalists who are sort of uh, inciting uh, hate without any sort of worries about people knowing who they are. Um, I, I wanted to, I mean... One of the things I find interesting, I mean, I, I've definitely, uh, I just, get, you know, I've only got my personal experience really to go from, but I know that I've changed how I use social media because I find it quite oppressive at times. It can be quite full on, and I think, especially over the last year, where it was all we had to go to at times uh, for any sort of um, social interaction, there were times when it was too much, and and I've I've pulled back from it myself. Do you? Are you do you think we're sort of seeing? People use social media differently to how we were before. I know younger people, particularly, are using sort of TikTok more than Facebook and and going for certain platforms over others. Is is that going to be a, you know, is the way that we use it going to be the biggest thing that causes a change in social media?
2: Um, perhaps. I mean, yeah. So it, it's interesting, isn't it, with different different uses and different groups. I mean, a lot of younger people will will have a Facebook account, but mostly because you know their parents, their aunts and uncles, their grandparents are on it. And so they sort of have a, a very sort of clean version of themselves on, uh, on Facebook just to keep their family off other platforms.
1: You know? um, <laughs> <So> smart.
2: <laughs> and yeah. And so, you know, there's things like, uh, Finstagram, you know, fake Instagram. So you have one, again, one sort of public version of yourself and then you have another account, um, actually in, in some ways it's not fake, it's it's more real. That's the one that you share just with close friends. And that's you know, where I don't know, just your more personal thoughts or going to parties or you know, all these things that you might not want everyone at school or everyone at work or everyone in your family to see. Um so I think we're seeing a lot more sort of negotiation of different profiles and different versions of ourselves, particularly with young people, even things like shared accounts. You know, there there have been cases of people having um collective accounts to get around geolocation things just by bombarding with different random locations all the time um so yeah there's, there's a lot of tactics coming out um whether that'll happen at a big enough scale to actually enforce change i'm not sure yet i think it, it's it's useful to have those tactics because it, it does show that there are other ways of using it but i think we need to sort of convert that into the design of the systems themselves and actually have those kind of values and those approaches sort of entrenched in, in the, the social and technical build of these systems. Do
1: you, do you see a sort of a future of social, are we, you know, do you see it in 10, 15 years time still being pretty much as it is? Do you, do you still see it sort of affecting democracy, possibly pushing hate or do you think it's, you know, the, the, is it, have you got some hope? I'm looking for some hope anywhere. In, whenever I do these interviews, for this podcast, is it, you know, is there any hope that it might be, it, it, In in the future, we might be using it in a very different way or perhaps not at all.
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it will will always affect democracy and affect public discourse because it's the place that public discourse happens. So, you know, that's, it's going to be, I don't see it not being tied together. But hopefully, yeah, we can um, find alternative ways to design platforms, ones that are are more rooted in either localities or communities or um, the needs of specific Groups or users. Um, I think it will come down to whether we can sort of shift the business model and shift the um, the priorities. And you know, who, we hear a lot about stakeholders, but actually, what's at stake for different groups is very different. Um, you know, will it be focused on on business current policies? Still, you know, they still start from the assumption that the data should be taken by these companies. They still start from the assumption that they should be able to exploit that to make as much money as possible. We'd need something quite radical to to change it. but there is hope I, I do think. And, and maybe some of these regulations are some steps in the right direction.
1: brilliant Well, thank you so much for having time to chat. and I, I wanted to just the last question which is what I ask everybody I, I interview on this podcast, which is that apart from yourself, um what other people or sites or books would you recommend that listeners check out um in terms of the politics of of data use and privacy laws and social media or, or anything really who who are the people that you go to for information?
2: Uh, yeah, there's so many great people working in this area, you know, um, people like uh, Tarleton Gillespie, the book Custodians of the Internet, sort of lays out some of the issues around um, uh, sort of what the role of these platforms are. Um, Safia Noble, who's recently got a MacArthur Fellowship, uh, she's for like a decade now, she's been highlighting how Google search algorithms um, are biased uh, along racial and gender lines. Um, I've already mentioned people like Luke Stark and Anna Lauren Hoffman. Their work is, is really fantastic. Um, and then outside the sort of, that's often quite sort of North American focused. Um, outside of that, people like Gillian C. York have again for a long time been pushing the, the global reach of Facebook and the need to look at other places. Uh, in the UK, people like Ellen Akami talks about the rhythms of these platforms. Um, Harry Dyer has done a lot of work on, on anonymity um, and the issues with removing anonymous accounts. Um, and in the policy area, you've got people like Ellen Judson at Demos or Eric Chowdhury at the Royal Society who are getting really involved in sort of the discussion around regulation. Yeah, there's loads of great people to, to look for.
1: Thanks so much to Garfield for having time to chat. You can find them at g 8 Engermin on Twitter or their website is digitalcultu.re. So that's digitalcultu.re, where you can find all of Garfield's publications and policy reports, including the recent Digital Society one, which I'll pop a link to in the podcast blurb. And of course, you can also find Garfield at the Sociology Department of Solon University, should you be looking to study there too. Right, that is
2: ACAS ACAST powers the world's
0: best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: Nearly 250 interviewees done. Well, apart from all the episodes, I didn't manage to interview anyone. But there aren't just 250 political issues in the world, are there? What have I missed? What needs to be covered again? Should I just take the hint and sack it all in and interview some comedian that's already on 500 other podcasts this week, but with a vague theme about what their favourite way to lick a stamp is or something that banal? Let me know, and you can, of course, do that at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, which is the only method, because if you send me a Facebook friend request, I'll block and report you. (music) And that is it for the 250th Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Uh, You can now all get on with your lives while contemplating what on earth I've done with 10.41 days of mine, which actually... Isn't that much time when you say it like that, is it? It just sort of feels like it, which I think is testament to the quality of this show. If you've enjoyed any of the past 250 episodes, please consider telling others to jump on this wagon that's never ever left the wagon station or indeed has any wheels, and ask them to join us for the next 250 episodes or until it's too tricky to record this underwater. Maybe even give the show a review on the many varied podcast sites, and if you want to support this continuing for some weird reason, why not donate a mere £1 a month to the patreon.com forward slash parpolebroke2. Many thanks for 250 episodes of hosting to Acast, 250 stealings of your beats to my brother The Last Skeptic, nearly but not quite 250 episodes of linear liner notes for the website to Cat Day, and 250 episodes of podcast artwork to the late great Katie Coxall. This will inevitably be back next week when Boris Johnson announces that he'd forgotten the clocks went back, and so now the clock on climate change is an hour and one minute to midnight, and it's fine to keep pouring poo into rivers, and he goes around handing a lump of coal to everyone at the conference as a souvenir. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Boris Johnson's Guide to History. Forty blank pages with headers such as the Roman Empire, the Dark Ages, that bit with the kings and queens, and when foreign people did stuff. All for you to fill in yourself with whatever's in your head at the time. Crayons not included.